Today, we are jumping back into Romans 9. Romans 9 seems to be a fairly odd place to be sitting in the Advent season preparing our hearts for Christmas, and I suppose it is, right? It is not your typical um, Advent passage, but that doesn't mean that it isn't incredibly relevant. Um, There is something incredibly comforting in knowing that God is in control. Um, When we talk about our God being a God who is redeeming and restoring, that it is a God who, who is telling a story that is greater than our story, but he's telling it in our story. He is actually working in the stories of individuals throughout human history to ultimately tell a greater story than the one we're telling for ourselves. God is at work in the events of history. He is not absent. He is not forgetful. He is not distant. Nor is he fearfully reacting to the events of history, trying to figure out how he is going to clean up this mess we continually make. Um, He is sovereign over the events of history. That is incredibly comforting because it allows us on our best day um, to be reminded that uh, we're, we're, uh, we're not in control and on our worst day that he is um, and that even as messy as this world is, as chaotic uh, and destructive as the forces are, that we have a God who ultimately is greater and will turn these things in the end. He is, even now, making all things new. That is our Advent hope. He already came to make all things new and with the resurrection of Christ set loose a power in this world that will, in the end, see all things made new. So it's comforting, but it's also challenging. It's also challenging. When we're talking about the sovereignty of God, that leads to all kinds of difficult personal questions. What does this mean for me? And for my loved ones, what does this mean for personal freedom and choice? What does this mean for my responsibility for working out the choices of my life or the choices of those that are near and dear to me as they make choices that I don't like and don't agree with? How does God's sovereignty play out in that way? Um, and, and, and that's where it becomes unsettling. And I think deeply difficult, especially when we see things happening in ways we don't like. When we see the story take turns that are uncomfortable for us. That we think God's getting the story wrong. What do we do with that? What do we do when God's sovereignty isn't a comfort but it's a challenge. Um, That's what we're going to kind of dig into a little bit this morning, okay? We started this conversation last week by looking at at the beginning of Romans 9, and and, uh, I'm going to reread a portion of that. I was planning on pushing ahead this morning into the next paragraph, which is all about God being the potter and us being the clay, and and the more I wrestled with it, and the more I wrote, and the more, um, even this morning as I got up and was just reviewing my notes, I realized I needed to break it up again. And so um, this morning we're going to be uh, really kind of in a parenthesis dealing with some of the ideas that were left unfinished last week. And, uh, and even though the title of this sermon is The Potter and the Clay, we're not getting to The Potter and the Clay today. Uh, we'll be getting to that next week. So let's go ahead and take a look at Romans 9. Romans 9, and uh, let's 
take a look at verses um, 14 uh, through 18. Starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, um, just to remind you, we we covered this paragraph last week, and, and there's a central tension here, right? Paul is confronting uh, some of the, the Jewish um, members of the Roman church, right? In Rome, you have a diverse community of, of Jews and Gentiles, right? Or if you're looking at it from the other way, Romans and barbarians, um, two groups that don't mix well, a little bit of oil and water happening. Uh, they typically judge each other as opposed to enjoy each other. They typically are incredibly uncomfortable in each other's company as opposed to simply relaxed and, oh yeah, this is easy life. It's a very difficult situation, and uh, Paul is, is the whole book of Romans is written that, that these two diverse communities might form into one new community, a community of unity around the work of Christ and around their common grace, uh, being able to set aside the markers that divide them and lead them to judge each other and despise each other, to fear each other. Um, and uh, to pull away from each other, right? Paul ultimately wants to work with the Romans to reach Spain. And in order for them to partner with him in this church planting effort, he is going to need them to be unified, to love each other and not despise each other or fear each other or judge each other. Part of that confrontation is working through some of the theological complexities the Israelites are bringing to the table, right? The Jews are coming to the table and saying, we are God's chosen people. We have a right to the blessing of God. You're telling us that God is now shifting into blessing the Gentiles and away from blessing the Jews. How can that be? We are the covenant people of God. We we were honored by God and have a right to the blessing of God. And in this passage, Paul is confronting the pride underlying that tension that anyone would deserve anything from God. God gives blessing, but that blessing is always extended as mercy, not as a wage that has been earned, not as something that is deserved uh, or, or anyone has a right to because of their birth or their, their works, their good works or, or um, their heritage. And so um, Paul gives them Moses and Pharaoh. and says, look, God extended mercy to, to Moses. You think it's because Moses was of, of Abraham and, and deserved that blessing because he was in God's chosen people. No, God even told Moses himself, I will give mercy to whom I give mercy. You're not getting mercy because of your birthright. You're not getting mercy because you deserve it. You're not getting mercy because you've earned it or merited it. You're getting mercy because I, your sovereign God, have chosen to show you mercy. That's it. Pharaoh, on the other hand, God hardened. God did not show Pharaoh mercy. God hardened Pharaoh. And the Israelites were like, of course, Pharaoh's a bad guy. And because he's a bad guy, of course God hardened him. He deserved the judgment he received. And and Paul's point is, no, 
They both deserved judgment. It's just that God chose to show mercy to Moses in a way he didn't choose to show mercy to Pharaoh. Because God will show mercy to whom he will show mercy, and he will harden whom he will harden. There is no grounds for pride. There is no grounds for a false sense of superiority or security that we are God's people, that we are church people, that we are moral people, that we are the right people. At the end of the day, there aren't three groups of people, the good guys, the bad guys, and God. There's just two groups, God and everybody else who desperately needs grace. That's it. And that confronts the pride of the Israelites. That confronts the pride. That confronts the pride in every age of the highly religious people. People who work really hard at their morality, work really hard at their religious pedigree, work really hard to impress themselves and impress others with their self-control and their religious devotion, with their giving and their, their whatever else they got going on, right? You earn nothing, but you can receive everything by mercy. That's been Paul's point. Now, before we move in to the next paragraph, where, where Paul is going to become even more confrontational because uh, his, some of his audience are, are not just going to be questioning what he's teaching, they're going to be questioning the very character of God. And, 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 and Paul isn't going to be real gentle with that, as we will see. But before we push into that new paragraph, I want to loop back around to a very important point. I got a, I got a great question this week via email. Somebody submitted one of the response cards that are in the seat back pockets. A good chance to remind you, they are there and you can use them. Uh, you submit those, we read those every single week and, and we will pray for your prayer requests and we will respond to your questions. But, uh, but I got a great question and, and, and essentially the question was this, if God shows mercy to whomever he wants, if we want mercy but God doesn't desire to give it, what happens? If God shows mercy to whomever he wants and his will isn't dependent on ours in any way. He doesn't respond to us. He initiates toward us. What happens if we want mercy, but God doesn't give it? Doesn't that create a theological barrier, not only to our own relationship with God, but potentially our ability to reach people who don't know God, right? Isn't this the kind of truth that makes people turn away from God because they hear this sort of stuff and they're like, well, if God just shows mercy to whomever he's going to show mercy to, then, then what does it matter, right? Who am I and, and, and what kind of God does that anyway? And it's, it's actually a great question. That's actually the right question um, because it's an actual question. It's, it's not, uh, as we will see, Paul had a lot of people who were questioning, which is very different from asking questions. Questioning is an accusation veiled in the form of a question. Um, but this passage does provoke us to a lot of deep and complex questions. If the whole thing is totally dependent on God's willingness and desire to show mercy, does it even matter what we want? If God is sovereign over salvation, does it even matter whether we believe, what we believe, what we do? Now, that's not the, uh, the question, that's not the question Paul's wrestling with in this passage, right? Paul doesn't address those questions, but I think these are common questions when we come to this passage. I have found myself asking those questions, and I have repeatedly heard others asking them. So let's take a look again at verse 17 and 18, because I want to show you something. In verse 17, 
and 18. It says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is a clear statement of the sovereignty of God, exercised independently of human will. He he is not responding, he is initiating. He's not looking and saying, what do I do with this mess? I guess I'll make these choices. He has already determined. The events of human history are simply moving in accordance with his sovereign decree, which had already been aligned with his will. And that is a true, complex, and essential part of the picture. But I'm going to propose to you, it's not the whole picture. And I think it's important for us to recognize that. Right? Let me show you these verses. Paul, when, when he's talking about Pharaoh, is actually quoting um, at the end of Exodus 9. Um, and, and when we look at Exodus 9, things get a little bit more complex in the original, in the original context. And Paul knew that. Right? I don't, Paul was no stranger to this. Paul knew the scripture uh, way better than, than, than I do. Um, but let me, let me just show you this. This is uh, Exodus 9, 34 through 10.1, it says this, but when Pharaoh saw that the plague had passed, he hardened his heart. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Now, obviously, I've, I've trimmed out a little bit of, of, of stuff in these verses that are important to the original context, but, but I want you to see uh, something very specific. Um, let me ask you a question. Who, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? I don't know what you said, but you're all right. Okay? Um, according to this passage, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God hardened his heart. And his heart was hardened, which is passive, which means we don't know who's doing the hardening. Okay? Could be Pharaoh. Could be God. Um, when we look at this dynamic, we see it actually through this entire passage. If you go back and look at Exodus chapter 7 through 14, that's the passage that deals with the 10 plagues, okay? When, when, when Moses is coming to Pharaoh and saying, God says, let my people go, and Pharaoh each time says, mm, no. And so the Lord says, okay, here's a plague, uh, and I'll come back later, and we'll do this whole thing again 10 times. And, uh, and, and through that passage, Exodus 7 through 14, 10 times God demands that Pharaoh release his people, and 10 times the Pharaoh refused. The verb hardened is used 15 times in these chapters. Six times it's passive. In other words, it just says the Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We don't know who did the hardening. That's the thing with a passive voice. You don't know who's actually doing the action. It could be the Pharaoh hardening his heart. It could be the Lord hardening his heart, but it's clear that it doesn't really matter. His heart is being hardened. Three times it says that the Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That it was a choice he made, a deliberate action that he did to himself. Six times it says that the Lord hardened his heart. That the Lord sovereignly did this to uh, Pharaoh's heart to achieve a specific end, which, which of course, um, is already revealed to us so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, right? God tells us why he's doing this. He has a purpose behind this activity. 
Now, the numbers aren't important. I'm not going to draw some, some big point out of how many times, which time. I just want to show you this dynamic of back and forth is present in these chapters. And I think that's important, right? Because who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did Pharaoh? Yeah. Did God? Yeah. Also, yeah. Um, so who did it? They both did it. They both did it. Which leads to another question. Is there a cause and effect here? In other words, did someone do it first and someone else did it because the other one did it first? Now, there are commentators that are going to take both angles on this thing, right? Some commentators are going to show up, depending on their leaning, and make a case. Uh, one, one will show up and say, you know, God acted first. Because God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because he didn't really have a choice about it, right? God just sovereignly hardened his heart, and so Pharaoh's like, oh, I think I'll harden my heart. But he really didn't make a choice. He was simply doing what God had already done. God initiated, Pharaoh responded, and therefore the cause and effect. Because God caused the hardening, Pharaoh, the effect is Pharaoh followed suit. You will have other commentators, though, showing up and saying, when you look at the passage, it actually says Pharaoh hardened his heart first. Before it says the Lord hardened his heart, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. So therefore, Pharaoh hardened his heart and God followed suit. So Pharaoh initiated, that was the cause, and God followed, that's the effect. So God just gave him over to the choice he had already made. God allowed him to choose and then blessed his choice because he had a purpose in it. Pharaoh acted and God responded. There is an underlying assumption in these efforts to try to find cause and effect. Either our freedom to choose is not real and it's fake because God already chose for us or God's sovereignty is curtailed and isn't truly fully revealed or exercised because he's not initiating, he's responding to human choices. In one case, we choose God because we have no choice because God already chose us. In the other, uh, which, by the way, leads us, you know, people, to, they, the, the accusation would then be, well, we're just robots. We're puppets, right? We, we don't really have, it's just a, it's the appearance of choice. It's not the actual freedom of choice. It is, uh, there's no freedom. There's no volition. Uh, we're simply like a water running down a hillside where there's a ravine, right? We have no choice. We're going to follow the ravine, right? So is the water at fault? No, the ravine is at fault. On the other side, though, um, People are going to say that God chose us because he was simply responding to our choices. You'll hear this argument often in this term, that God looks down the corridors of time and sees what choice we would make and then chooses that choice before we ever get to make that choice because he already knew what choice we would make. So God chooses us before the foundations of the earth, but his choice is dependent on the choice he knew we would make once we were actually given the ability to choose. God doesn't initiate, God responds, cause and effect. The problem is scripture doesn't present any of this as cause and effect. It simply doesn't. 
Scripture presents this as a paradoxical tension, as two truths that coexist side by side. God is absolutely sovereign, and he makes his choices based on his own plan and will, not in response to us, right? Let me show you this verse. This is Ephesians 1. Uh, Ephesians 1 is a, is a chapter that is, is rich in this teaching, right? It, it begins with a declaration of us being elect for the foundation of the world, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, very much like, like Romans 8. And then in 111, it says this, we have been predestined according to the purpose like, like, why? What, what governed the predestination? It was according to the purpose of him, that is God, who works all things. What things? All things. How many of the things? All of the things. A couple of the things? No, all of the things. Well, just like big things in human history? What about little things in human history? All things. He works all things according to what? According to the choices of the people he sees, according to how they're naturally inclined, is he responding? No. What governs his choices? The counsel of his own will. That's it. What governs the sovereignty of God? The counsel of his own will. He chooses because he chooses. He has a plan, he has wisdom, he has knowledge. And his only counselor is himself. And there is no better counselor, by the way, than God. <laughs> he's all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, which means that he's not in time, he's out of time. He's the ever-present I am. He doesn't experience the passage of time like we do. He is currently standing both at the creation and at the consummation of human history. He stands outside of time, no longer bound as we are. The only one who can counsel God is God, and his sovereignty is not bound to anyone but himself, and it is exercised in accordance with his wisdom, his knowledge, and his character. His sovereignty is absolute. On the other hand, we see clearly in Scripture that we are presented with the responsibility of making choices. John 3.16, one of the most beloved script, uh, passages in all of Scripture, right? Long before I became a Christian, uh, this is a fun, I didn't even think about this until now. Uh, I, I was, my mom went through a, anyway, I wanted to get my mom a gift one time, and she was going to church, and so I went, I was getting her a license plate cover, you know, she had a really cool 83 Celica, I don't know if you've seen those, those are sweet cars, but um, I went to the place, and I was like, you know, I think there's a verse she likes, I think it's like, like I don't know, John... John 3, is there a 1st John? Is there a 1st John? But I think it might be John. And the guy's like, I think it's John 3.16. I'm like, great. Let's, let's put that on the license. Like John 3.16 is the one that's held up in the end zone at the, every football game, right? Everybody knows John 3.16. It is one of the most well-loved scriptures. And, and there's a reason for that. What a beautifully open invitation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What a beautiful invitation. What a wide open offer. Who gets to receive this gift of mercy? Whoever wants it. 
who gets to walk through this door of blessing? Whoever is humble enough to receive this grace. For God so loved the world, which we use so there as an emphasis, but that's really not in the original. It says this is the manner in which he loved the world. That's what so means. This is how he demonstrated his love to the world, that he gave his only son. What an incredible act of self-sacrifice and mercy. You want to see love on display. That whoever believes in him, whoever, whoever, not those who are worthy, not those who deserve it, not those who make good moral choices, not those who are good religious people, not those who are born into the right families or go to the right churches, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. The appeal, uh, and, and, and in fact, accurately, I should say, the command to believe the gospel is throughout the New Testament. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is a, a universal presence throughout the New Testament. When the apostles were preaching, they proclaimed, believe in Jesus. Not believe in Jesus if you're one of the elect. Not, hey, worry about whether or not God has chosen you, and then if he has, you choose God. He didn't show up and say, you know, God and his sovereignty. He said, you, in your free will have a choice and a responsibility and it is profoundly consequential so it is clear as we study the new testament as we look at scripture it is clear that we have two truths that seem to be paradoxical god is absolutely sovereign and completely in control. He makes his choices independent of outside influence. He is the eternal initiator. That's one truth. The other truth is that we are free to make choices. And we are responsible for the choices that we make. We choose who we will trust. We choose how we will walk out our faith. We choose every single day whether we believe and will keep believing the gospel in a way that transforms our lives so that we become more and more like Christ we, we, we choose who to trust and how to live it out so how can these two things simultaneously be true how can God be absolutely sovereign and we be actually free how can God choose before the foundation of the world who would be predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, while simultaneously whosoever will believe will be saved. Yeah. So that leaves us some questions. Am I saved because God is sovereign, or am I saved because I believe in Jesus? The answer is just yes. That's it. The answer is yes. God doesn't elect us based on our choice of Him. 
And we are free to hear and respond to the gospel and are responsible for how we respond. See, there's no other way to explain these two truths that are revealed throughout Scripture. In fact, the whole book of Romans that we're studying is an appeal to the Romans to believe in Jesus and live out their faith, right? The entire book of Romans. Paul put all this work into them. Why? Because he assumed they had the freedom to choose. They could make choices that were consequential, not only to their lives, but to the lives of others. And the outworking of the mission of God. He wrote the book of Romans, right? Why would he go through such pains if it didn't matter, if all that mattered was that God was sovereign, right? If God has ordained all things before they occur and has laid out the path of human history, if what will be will be, then I might as well sit back and find out with everybody else. See, see that is an inappropriate rejection of half of the truth that we are free and responsible. We can't use God's sovereignty as an excuse to not exercise our freedom to believe the gospel and to live the principles of the gospel out in our lives. We cannot use the sovereignty of God as an excuse not to believe in God or follow God, which sadly happens. No, we see Paul, man. Paul, Paul's in the trenches. He is appealing. He's reasoning. He's praying. He's urgent. And he's with the Romans. And he's like, man, believe the gospel and keep believing the gospel. This is more consequential than you can ever imagine. Why? Because yes, God is sovereign. And yes, we are responsible to exercise our free will. And how we exercise it is consequential. It matters. This is a paradox. This is a paradox. Two things that are true but seem to be mutually exclusive. Two truths that don't make sense when you put them side by side and yet they remain true. And this creates what we have a theological tension. And we hate tension. We hate it when things don't mesh together. We hate it when it's like, yeah, that's true and that's true. Wait, those don't go together. Yes, sorry, that's just the way it is, right? We take tensions to be managed and we try to turn them into problems to be solved. And as a result, what you end up with is a group of people over here saying, well, it's all sovereignty, free will is just an illusion. And you have other people over here saying it's all free will, God's sovereignty is curtailed, restricted, or not truly presented the way Paul presents it. We don't do well with tension. It must be one or the other. God isn't really sovereign or we aren't really free. But any attempt to undercut the mystery of the tension ends up misrepresenting what God reveals. So what do we do with mysteries that we don't really know how to explain? We name them. That's what we do, right? You guys are familiar with this. What's gravity? Gravity is the force that causes a greater massed object to restrict the movement of a lesser massed object. That's awesome. What is the force that causes a greater massed object to restrict the movement of a lesser massed object? It's gravity. We just name it. Well, what is it? We can measure it. We can describe it. And at the end of the day, 
Simply by naming it, we think we've actually come to understand it. So let's do that here, okay? Let's do that here. Let's let the tension stand. Let these two paradoxical truths coexist with one another. Theologically, there is a name for this. It's concurrence. Concurrence is the theological conviction that God is concurrently sovereign while we are morally free. That those two truths, while seemingly in contradiction concurrently, are true and in effect. Concurrence. So there you go, I don't understand it. The more I think about it, the more it makes my head hurt. And I will tell you, if any time, if, if you are ever in a position where you are teaching about the sovereignty of God, if you ever get to a position where you feel like you've got it all figured out and you're comfortable with it, you've already oversimplified it. I guarantee it. This will, in the end, leave you confused and humbled, and I think that's part of the point. Because God is bigger than we can understand. And by his nature operates in ways that we simply cannot reduce to our logical paradigms. So what do we do with this? I heard a commentator once say that this truth could be seen or likened to a mysterious door to heaven. And as you approach it on one side of the door, it says, whosoever will may come. And when you believe the gospel and you pass through the door, you look back and on the other side of the door, it says you've been chosen since before the foundation of the world. I like that. I think that is a helpful metaphorical paradigm. As long as we don't turn it into some kind of giant cosmic bait and switch. That God pretends that we have free will until we believe and then he reveals to us, yeah, you never really had free will to begin with because that's just not the way it works. Both sides of the door are true, right? Both sides are true. So is there any practical application to this? I think so. I think so. Um, I think it's this, that, that the only safe place to be when we approach God and the truths of his word is humble and grateful that's it we want so hard to be confident and competent a lot of young bible students that's their goal when I first started reading the scripture I told you to become a believer at 17 and, and one of my first goals as a young believer was I wanted to be able to give you a summary and a, a clear thesis for every book of the Bible. Like I wanted to have that kind of mastery of the scripture that I could tell you this is, this is the big idea of the passage. Here's a summary of everything that's covered in this entire book. And here's the central reason the book was written. That's not a bad goal. And it led to a lot of, of fruitful study over the years. Ironically, the more I studied, the more difficult that became. The book is not something that can be summarized or systematized. Those are helpful ways of approaching the scripture, but the more you get into it, I'm just telling you, man, it's confusing. It's going to leave you off balance. And that's part of the point. Because if we ever start thinking we've got it all figured out, we're in dangerous territory. That's when we're starting to, to find our security and our pride instead of our security in his love. 
The only safe place to be is humble and grateful. Amazed by the incredible beauty of the love of God. Undone with the wonder and the deep sense of awe that this sovereign God loves us. This God of immense power and majesty, wisdom and strength honors us with such an amazing grace. Humility and gratitude are the only foundation that will provide us any security. Humility and gratitude will protect us from the kind of pride and fear that grip the heart of some of the people in Rome that Paul is now getting ready to rebuke because you don't comfort pride, you confront it. It's the most loving thing you can do because you don't simply want to calm down the fear that pride produces. You want to free them from the pride that is enslaving them. We'll get into that next week. For now, why don't we close in a word of prayer? We'll share communion and, and sing some more. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that, oh my goodness, you are God. That every conception we have of you <laughs> is not only limited, it is in, in some ways going to be oversimplified. You reveal yourself to us in ways that we can understand and then invite us in wonder to realize that even those revelations are, are simplified and partial, that you are at all times revealing down. We're so limited in our capacity. We're so prideful in our self-estimation. We are so fearful in our weakness. But Lord, you don't despise us. You don't judge us. You don't reject us. You don't condemn us. You love us. And invite us simply to receive that love, even as you reveal things to us we don't understand and sometimes makes us ridiculously uncomfortable. And I thank you that you humble yourself. Will you teach us to be humble? I thank you that you are motivated by love. Will you awaken within us a responding love? Lord, I pray for my friends who are present, maybe who haven't received this gift of grace, haven't believed in your son. Maybe they've been religious and gone to church. Maybe they've gone through classes and learned religious things. Maybe they come from a completely irreligious background. Spirit, will you right now awaken their hearts to the invitation that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Will you awaken their hearts 
that they might receive this incredible gift. And for those of us, Lord, who have believed, will you awaken us to the wonder of our faith once again and the beauty of the honor we've been invited to receive, that we might be humble and grateful. And we pray all of this in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen.